things that I've seen Is it my life or just something I dream? Resume. Noun. One. A summing up. Summary. Two. A brief written account of personal, educational, and professional qualifications and experience. You would think a kid set loose for the summer would be all over comic books, but these were pretty much dead months to me. I already mentioned picking up Weird War Tales number 115, so the only other book I bought over the summer of 82 was Batman Annual number 8, which I pulled off a spinner rack at Jimco. I was fascinated by The Messiah of the Crimson Sun by Mike W. Barr and Trevor Von Eden. I'd never seen art or coloring like that before, the latter provided by Lynn Varley of eventual The Dark Knight Returns fame and The Dark Knight Strikes Back Infamy. It was beautiful, striking, and had a scope of apocalyptic magnitude, up to and including the appearance of a Christ-like figure. It is my first Ra's al Ghul story, who remains one of my favorite villains, Batman or otherwise. Of course, anytime I read a Ra's story of less grandeur or the art inferior to the high standards set here, I feel the creators are just plain doing it wrong. I still have my original copy, sans cover, and some early pages, plus a complete reading copy. All around the edges are dark brown and there's water stains. I probably took this into the bathtub with me as a kid. I was prone to doing that back then. And I had to restaple some of the pages to keep it all together, but I still have it. This was the first graphic novel, quote, unquote i ever read in terms of feel and quality despite it simply being an annual this was one of those truly exceptional annuals that reminds me of how valued that format still was in the 1980s i remember how stanley used to always want to make it worthwhile for readers to spend extra money on an oversized add-on by putting on an extra special show like the wedding of reed and sue or the revelation of who peter parker's parents really were unfortunately but intentions were good Barr doesn't take things quite that far just bringing back rachel goal after an absence but putting the dark knight detective through his paces against the nick extinction-level threat in a globe-trotting mystery, the scale and the execution made it feel like this was a real humdinger. Von Eden is at the peak of his powers. DC's answer to Paul Smith with a perfect, minimal line coupled with intricate layouts beyond PMS's reach. I often dismiss modern coloring as being inessential to storytelling, and so intent on turning everything into a digital painting that it actually undermines the appeal of this medium in a competitive marketplace. Here, though, Lynn Varley's unique palette is essential to the mood of the story, and the challenging art makes her role that much more valuable to the reader. I was still naive enough in 1982 to believe my first tale of the demon was also his last, and I was a bit disappointed upon his revival, but I will say this annual would have been a worthy send-off for an A-class Batman villain. This was probably my favorite comic of 1982, and a competitor for that crown was another annual, the X-Men 6 with Chris Claremont and Bill Sienkiewicz, revisiting Dracula in a lethal number. However, I didn't actually read that annual until several years later, like 87, 88, and it ultimately wasn't quite as accomplished, which in no way diminishes it. Has DC ever collected all the 80s bar race stories in one trade paperback. I'd much prefer to see something like this in a hardcover than the umpteenth repackaging of Alan Moore stories. I guess that I was so bowled over I skipped August entirely. Since I don't have many comic books to talk about this time, I'm just flipping through the book and I'm seeing ads for the Capsella Construction, which was apparently a hydromotor powered Lego type contraption. I want to say my father might have bought one of these for me when I was a kid, but he wasn't around very much and didn't know me. I was never a science kid. I didn't like building things. So I want to say they were just random pieces of this thing lying around the house. There's an ad for Bubble Yum. I used to chew gum when I was a kid. I really don't do that anymore. But it reminds me, when you were a kid, you used to go to the barber shop. The good barbers would have a wedge of pink gum-like material. It tasted more like baby powder <laughs> when you were first biting into it. But it was sort of your treat for sitting still while your hair got cut. Oh, and there's also an ad in here for Sergeant Rock, the uh, Rimco action figures. I gotta tell you, I, I had one or two of them, and they pretty much sucked. 
they were obviously trying to ape both G.I. Joe and Star Wars. They had the poor articulation of Star Wars, and they were military figures like G.I. Joe, but they weren't very well sculpted. They were really generic. I can't even tell you which one I had because you can barely tell them apart. I know I bought at least one that was in the standard packaging because I like the Joe Kubert art and because I wanted to get one of those dog tags that came with each of the figures. But I also want to say either I or one of my friends had the action machine gun nest, which was basically a, a lumpy pile of rocks and some fake barbed wire. I don't know if it was Sergeant Rock or another similar line, but at least one of these lines had die cast metal chests. And then I think they had rubber or plastic arms and legs. So at least they were fairly solidly constructed, but they're also total cannon fodder. They were so boring. They didn't have any personality. So those were the guys that got killed off while your hero figures would move on. Rimco's tended to be really cheap and they were well represented at the Kmart's that I would go to a lot growing up. So I actually had quite a few Rimco figures. I had picked up the Bo Duke, Luke Duke, and Boss Hog figures from the Dukes of Hazard line. Boss Hog was my penguin surrogate from before I had a penguin action figure. And I don't remember which of the Dukes was the blonde one, but for some reason I turned him into my surrogate for Doctor Strange. I called him Mr. Mystic. I think he maybe had some weird finger posturing or something that inspired that. But he was a favorite among my G.I. Joe-sized toys as a kid. I was also into the Lost World of Warlord. These toys were a lot like Master of the Universe, but a lot cheaper. And I totally missed it as a kid. I totally got suckered. But if you look at the figures, you'll notice that pretty much the entire bodies are exactly the same from figure to figure. And all they did was add accessories and new heads and new paint jobs to change them up. But that didn't stop me from buying the main Warlord figure, who I remember had the winged helmet, but the wings were plugged into there with tabs. And I remember losing one of the wings. Or what had happened is I think a friend of mine's brother had stolen the figure from me and he'd lost the wing. And then I called him on it eventually and got the toy back. And to be honest with you, I've always regretted that because I don't know how many toys this kid had. And I know that I had a pretty good amount, at least of action figures. I didn't cherish that particular figure. And I just kind of wish I'd kept my mouth shut and let him keep it. I also had Deimos, who was the villain figure. He had a cool goatee, but I didn't get a lot of use out of him. I think he got stolen from me also. So I had a Hercules figure. He was all right. I had put him in storage with a bunch of other stuff when the family was moving one time. It was the same place where my copy of Captain America, Sentinel of Liberty went. And then we didn't pay for the storage unit. And I guess they probably auctioned that stuff off. But the one I do still have is Mikola, who was supposed to be, I think, a Russian pilot in the comics who also got bitten by a werewolf. So he he would turn into like a wolf-like figure. And they couldn't really show that in the action figure because, again, from the neck down, he was exactly the same as all the other figures. So what they did is gave him a really feral-looking face with fangs and wild hair, a streak through his hair. I think there were two variations. I think there was one with brown hair and a black streak and then with a white streak. I've actually had two of the ones with a white streak. The one that I bought originally back in 82, I still have in my possession. It was one of my absolute favorite action figures. He was sort of like a cross between Conan and Wolverine. So he was always the ultimate badass of all my He-Man-sized toys. And one other thing I like to pick up were the Rimco Mini Monsters. The only place I ever saw them was Toys R Us. So I only ever got them at like holidays and such. We didn't go to Toys R Us very often. And one of the things I really liked about them is they were freaking cheap. I think that these things cost 75 cents to a dollar at the time, maybe a buck fifty on the outside. So I was able to pick up pretty much all of them. The Phantom of the Opera, the Wolfman, the Creature from the Black Lagoon, the Mummy. But my two favorites were Frankenstein and Dracula. Frankenstein was one of my cool muscle guys. He had the outstretched hands, so he was great for like, palming dudes in the head and picking people up and throwing them. He was always doing that kind of stuff. And I think I even did the whole thing where he was Frank in Stein, like how Mike Allred made Batman Frank Einstein. We both thought we were cute. It really wasn't a good idea. And then Dracula was just one of the generic villains. And it was also neat because all the figures would glow in the dark. And they all had cool packaging that reflected the Universal Monsters. They were all pictures from the 1930s and 40s movies. The only thing I didn't have was the playset because I never had the money 
money to buy anything like that. I could afford the little figures, but it was just way too much of an extravagance. And looking at it, it's like a cardboard piece of crud anyway, so no great loss. While I was looking at those Remco action figures, I, I went down a rabbit hole looking at contemporaneous toys too. And one thing I noticed that nobody ever talks about are the Fisher-Price adventure people. Maybe it was because I grew up with two women running the house, but I actually had a fair few of those. I remember having the male racer, the male helicopter rescue pilot, who was one of my heroic characters from But when I didn't have very many figures, just some Star Wars and some G.I. Joes. My stereotypical hero guy. A little bit of a Steve Trevor thing going on too since he was a pilot. I believe I had Nancy the Rescue Worker who was like the only girl figure I had for the longest time. So she had to carry a lot of weight on that front. I think I had Jody slash female safari daughter who was a smaller girl figure in green. But I don't think I had her for very long. I don't remember having a lot of adventures with that particular figure. I know I had the Astro Knight who was this blocky pyramid looking dude with a yellow and red spacesuit. He couldn't move his head. I remember him very stiff, so I think that he was a guy who got beat up a lot in My Little Adventures. But the coolest ones, and I don't remember if I had both or just one of the two, but there was the X-Ray Man and X-Ray Woman, who were supposed to be alien beings, and they were precursors to the Crystal Action figures in that they were green-skinned, but the plastic that was used on them was translucent, at least the chests, and then they had sort of like circuitry painted onto their chests, and these big yellow dot eyeballs. The arms and legs were more of a cloudy, rubbery, and they were very soft, very malleable, so it was easy to make them swing and punch. I know Fisher-Price's whole intention with their figures was to make it so they weren't violent, but I was a boy, so people had to punch, and they looked cool while they were doing it. But those were more figures that I know I lost fairly early on. As far as other types of toys, I remember girls I knew who had the Coleco Frogger tabletop arcade game, which is sort of a misnomer. It was built to look like an old-style cabinet arcade game, but it had just this little tiny, crummy, super sub Game Boy screen and a little baby joystick. Even as a kid, it looked crap. And one of the girls I also knew had a glow worm, which was this doll from the arms down was just like a sack and it had a stocking cap. And when you squeeze it, its head would glow. And I also knew somebody who had what they called an orb puzzle, which was this odd thing is this silver ball with all these little colored balls in the midst of it. And it was supposed to be kind of like a Rubik's cube. But as a kid, I never got that concept. So I would just like spin the little balls a little bit and then throw it off the side because it was garbage. <laughs> Giving a quick gander at Mike's Amazing World of Comics, there were a few books that I missed from 1982 on my first pass. I got Conan the Barbarian number 135 out of a three-pack at a grocery store while visiting my father. One of the only times I remember ever asking him to buy me anything. And afterward, I didn't feel good about it. Nothing against him, it just didn't sit well with me. Anyway, the Conan comic had a striking Walt Simonson cover involving a grapple with a giant golden owl. But what was underneath left my mind nearly 40 years ago. Probably my first exposure to Mark Silvestri, but his pencils were so utterly buried under Danny Bolandi's inks, I don't even know of that counts. Speaking of barbarians, I was buying my fair share of Master of the Universe action figures in the early 80s, which often came with mini-comics. I would have had He-Man and the Power Sword and the Vengeance of Skeletor, which were stories with illustrations drawn by Alfredo Alcala, as well as the proper comics, The Tale of Tila and The Power of Point Bread by Gary Cohn and a young Mark Texera. 
While chronologically a bit premature, we got an Atari 2600 around 83 to 84, and the game cartridges sometimes came packaged with digest-length comics featuring the spacefaring adventures of Team Atari Force in the far future of 2005 AD. I had the debut story by Jerry Conway, Roy Thomas, Ross Andrew, Dick Giordano, and Mike DiCarlo, featuring a conspicuously diverse team including a black man, a white woman, an Asian woman, and an Indian man. But don't worry bros, the Aryan Martin champion would lead them. I missed the second half of their origin story in the Berserk game, but got rooked into the terrible Star Raiders with the useless video touchpad controller that I never figured out. The third Atari Force edition was drawn by Yo Kane, though he was inked so heavily by Giordano and DiCarlo to look consistent across all the books that you'd be forgiven for not recognizing his handiwork. This was also my introduction to the hideous orange talking monkey things called Huggas, setting me up for a delightfully mean-spirited joke in the Ambush Bug stocking stuffer a few years on. I again missed the fourth book, but the final edition came with the solid Galaxian video game. And this one actually looked like Kane properly inked by Giordano. It's the one I remember the best, thanks to a giant tentacle monster and other weird aliens present. Despite being rather splody with all the wannabe X-Wing fighters, the Atari Force comics were a tad dull and really stretched out. They tended to run around 50-odd pages, but they were masterpieces compared to the DSR-80 WizKids. <laughs> Alright, so I'm finally going to address your correspondence. Uh, we got Tumblr likes from Keith G. Baker, Trekker Talk, and Flair Joe, who also reblogged our Tumblr. Each episode does come with a Tumblr, mostly featuring covers discussed in the episodes, so if you're interested, check that out. Links are going to be on the blogs. Speaking of blogs, the original blog edition of Comic Reader Resume, posted years ago, the one dated for February 1982, prompted Ange to reply, I thought this was a very interesting post because it was right around the time that I think I made that small step from fan to collector it definitely makes me want to write that post and actually contributed two posts to my old largely defunct dc bloodlines blog i'll have links for those two posts on the blog for this episode so i'd highly recommend checking those out maybe one of these days i could talk about doing a podcast version as well on the comic reader resume podcast episode number one siskoid wrote as you know i copied your idea to see if i could develop my youtube channel and i guess it's technically my first quote-unquote podcast sorry for the theft i'm actually quite surprised i managed to produce almost a dozen episodes of Recollected. And I remember listening to the first few, but I don't think I ever listened to them all. So I need to go check those out. And uh, you can actually check them out via a link on our blog to Siskoid's blog of Geekery. You know, Siskoid produces actual podcasts now for the Fire and Water Podcast Network, where he could do the same thing I'm doing here. He could just bundle up those YouTube videos and turn it into an episode of a podcast if they ever need content. So Martin Gray replied to one of the episodes, but again, it was a three-year break in between episodes, so I don't know which one this was anymore. Anyway, he wrote, looking forward to listening. I'm still behind after my holiday last month. Around the same time, Andrew wrote, Love the resume podcast. Origin stories are cool. And Tony Greenall wrote, Into comics, listen to podcasts, roll spine, do some fine work. Thanks to Avengers Endgame coming out this week and an overly ambitious one song each memorial mix that I'm not going to be able to get finished until next month probably. I'm rushing out another comic reader resume mostly because I had this leftover material lying around after doing the Zero Issue finally. So we already have comments on that. Again, one from Martin Gray saying, This is going to be good. Uh, Dr. Andrew wrote, love the resume episode, who doesn't like origin stories? I had a lot of people responding to the older episodes of the podcast in terms of likes and retweets and the like. I tagged them on earlier episodes. Uh, again, this episode 
didn't start getting promoted until earlier this week. So not everybody has necessarily replied yet. But I did try to gather everybody together for this episode so you can finally get acknowledged. Also, it was amusing to me, though, that I was discussing bringing back the podcast without telling folks which one it was. And it seemed like I got a stronger response to discussing working on the comic book resume podcast than when I actually was promoting the episode. So uh, some of those folks being here, if you did not catch the Zero episode, it's probably the best one I've done so far of this admittedly minor tangent to our podcasting. So you might want to check that one out. This one's an okay episode, but I think the stronger material was in episode zero. Folks who expressed interest included Adam Ironberry, Alan Middleton, Andrew, the Batmanalist, Bub, Charlie's Geekcast, Charlton Hero, Cindy Womack, Coffee and Comics, which used to be a blog the first time this was being done. Now it's a podcast. Collected Edition, Comics in the Golden Age, Dr. G Nerdologist, Ed Moore, Edir Araujo, Firestorm Fan, G.A. Sanchez, History of Comics on Film, INW, Iowa's Joe, Jeffrey Brown, John D. Knoll, John Reed's Comics and Podcasts about them, Justice First Dawn, Keith G. Baker, King Dinosaur, Kyle Benning, formerly of King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun Podcast, Odell Abner Dracula, Paul Hicks, Long Box of Darkness, Ranger Gord, Reggie Reggie, co-host of the Cosmic Treadmill Podcast, Rexford Orwell, Richard Field, Roy Huff, Ryan Daly, Secret Transmission Podcast, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Siskoid, Slangword Scott, Superbound, Resurrections, a Warlock and Thanos Podcast, and Zawisha, whose name sounds like a sound effect. I can see Hawkman winging through Thanagar. Zawisha! Zawisha! Searching my mind for some truth to reveal What thoughts are fantasy, what memories